Josh mentioned uh, at the beginning, we are going through the book of Josh this morning. So let's go ahead and pull up the overview video, uh, and then we'll dive right in. The book of Joshua was written mostly by Joshua between 1400 and 1370 BC as the Israelites entered the promised land of Canaan. After Moses' death, God appoints Joshua to lead the new generation of Israelites into the Promised Land. Before entering the foreign country, God once again calls his people to live according to the law as set apart from other nations. Before entering Canaan, spies are sent ahead to scout the land. While in the city of Jericho, the spies are hidden from the local authorities by Rahab, a prostitute who believed in God and his promise to deliver her land to the Israelites. It is this faith that saves Rahab and her family from destruction and displays God's continued mercy. God's miraculous deliverance of Jericho to the Israelites initiates a series of military conquests as the people follow God's leadership to take possession of the land he had promised them. Israel succeeds in battle when they're faithful to God's commands, but are defeated when they choose their own methods. At the end of this book, we see Joshua divide the land as inheritance for each tribe, establishing the geographic nation of Israel. Before dying, Joshua reminds the people of God's covenant with them and charges them to live lives set apart from the nations around them, trusting God as their king. I want to start this morning uh, by talking about uh, some people from uh, Jonathan's native uh, land. In 1969, the Beatles were falling apart as a band. Uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo were fighting, and they were desperately trying to finish just, just one last album together. Uh, John and his infamous girlfriend, Yoko, were addicted to heroin at the time. Paul is becoming increasingly controlling as he tries to wrangle everybody together. Uh, at separate times, George and Ringo both quit the band. And these recording sessions and all these interactions were filmed and they were released in a recent documentary on, on Disney Plus. And it, it just struck me how the tone of the Beatles at this time started as we really want to recapture the magic that brought us together in the first place. They were, they were desperate to fig figure out what made the Beatles into the Beatles and how can we get back to that. And the name of the album was even called Get Back at first. We want to get back to where we once belonged, but it was not meant to be. The band broke up, and then as a mark of acceptance, they called the album Let It Be. Now, the Beatles, I have to say this, the Beatles are by no means positive role models <laughs> or examples of how to have good relationships, but they do embody for many of us an experience that we've had when it comes to our relationship with God, a, a desire to get back to something meaningful, to, to be restored, to experience God again. Perhaps you grew up religious, but now after sort of wandering for a while, you're starting to feel this longing to get back to spiritual things, whatever that might look like. Or, or maybe you are a Christian, but after a few years in a pandemic, you've found that certain parts of your faith in God have waned. You, you've barely prayed or read the Bible or served. 
But renewal is about more than our individual relationship with God. It's also about our corporate church recommitment to faithfulness after past failures. So a lot of people uh, are writing nowadays about uh, the decline of gospel-centered evangelicalism in America and, and the need for revival, the need for rejuvenation and renewal. In Revelation, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, but this I have against you, this is Jesus talking to a church, this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When God's people have strayed from the path of following God, how can we get back? How can we be restored to who we're meant to be and what we're meant to do as God's people? And that is one of the primary questions that the first five books of the Bible sought to answer. So in Leviticus, we saw that God provided the Day of Atonement, which was a way that God's sinful people could live near the white-hot, holy presence of God. In Numbers, we saw how God responds to the failures of his people with both judgment and mercy at the same time. And last week, Kyle preached on Deuteronomy, where we saw our need for God to give us a, a new heart that can actually love and serve God. And now we're in the book of Joshua, and the people of Israel have finally, finally entered the promised land after 400 years of slavery, after 40 years of wandering in the desert. So we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 5 today. If you have a Bible, you can flip to that. Uh, let me just catch you up on, on the story of Joshua in those first four chapters. Uh, the new leader, Joshua, guided the people through the Jordan River. It was, it was a reenactment of God parting the Red Sea like he did for Moses and the first generation. See, now the people are on the cusp of fulfilling their calling that went all the way back to Genesis when God told Abraham that your family would bless all the nations of the world. The people are right about to enter the promised land. But first, they need to prepare themselves to make sure that they are actually right with God. Now, I don't want to give us the impression that Joshua 5, you know, holds all the answers for renewing the church, five simple steps to renewing the church. The reality is that there are many things in this text that are just not applicable for the 21st century church. Even so, this whole chapter is about Israel renewing their relationship with God after past failures. And so my goal this morning is to show how this passage is still instructive for us, and more importantly, how it points us to Jesus, the fulfillment of all these things. So the big idea of Joshua 5 is this. When God calls his people back to faithfulness, we must renew our relationship and rethink our allegiance. When God calls his people back to faithfulness, we must do two things. Renew our relationship and rethink our allegiance. So we're just going to walk through the story of Joshua chapter 5. I, I encourage you to read along with me. It'll also be up on the screen there. Um, we're going to start in verse 1, which leads us to talk about uh, a difficult but important topic, the, the war against the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. It's sort of the elephant in the room when you think about the book of Joshua so we got to talk about it. After that, we'll read the rest of the story to see Israel renewing their relationship and rethinking their allegiance. But first, let me just pray for us, and we'll dive into God's Word. Father, I ask that you would be present with us this morning. Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you soften our hearts? 
Jesus, would your name be magnified through your word in your people. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen. So Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, read along with me. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." Now, let's be clear what's going on here. I've, I've got a map up there. The people of Israel have crossed over the Jordan to the west side, the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, Abraham's family used to dwell in this place back in Genesis, but during their absence in Egypt, many different people groups have come into this land now. And God tells Israel to move into the land and take it from the Canaanites. For example, look at Deuteronomy 20. I've got it up on the screen, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 and 17. This is God speaking. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? In my experience, this is one of the most challenging parts of the Bible for modern readers, the war against the Canaanites. It, it can conjure images of crusades and holy war, or uh, invasion and conquest, or, or even ethnic cleansing and genocide. Today, we would condemn a nation for doing these things. And I wrote that line before Thursday when Russia began to invade Ukraine. So it's present in our mind, and I've even had conversations with some people saying, is what Russia's doing, is that the same thing that Joshua and Israel did back in, maybe that's in your mind as well. We would condemn a nation that does these things, let alone God's people doing these things, taking up the sword in this way in modern times. So how is God blessing the Canaanites? What do we do with all this? I just want to spend a, a few minutes here because one of the purposes of this thread series, as we're going through every book of the Bible, is to teach you how to read the Bible as well. And so when you're reading the book of Joshua, it's important that you understand what's going on. Tim Keller offers a helpful reframing of the question, as he often does. Uh, if we as Christians believe that God is perfect in all that he does, if we believe God is perfect, that he is just in his judgment, as well as overflowing with mercy for repentant sinners, then the problem is not if God is evil or if he tells his people to do evil. That's just not the problem because God doesn't do that. Rather, quote, the real problem, and it is a real problem, is that God allows the Israelites to do in Joshua and Judges what he forbids anyone else to do through all, all through the rest of the Bible. The, the laws of the Old Testament and the commandments of the New Testament are always against conquest. God's people are not to take someone else's land with violence. So why is this situation the exception? That's the question here. So to help us, I've got two sets of answers here. Number one, reasons for the Canaanite war, and number two, the details of the Canaanite war. So first, what are the reasons for this? 
You may remember about a month back when we were looking at Genesis 15, that when God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's family, God told Abraham that his family would be enslaved, that they would be rescued, that they would come back to Canaan. He, he told Abraham the future of his family. But they had to wait to come back to Canaan because of this cryptic phrase. He said, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And we go, okay, so what are the Amorites doing wrong here? As we read later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the people who lived in Canaan were not just sinful people like everyone is. They were a particularly vile and abominable society. In Deuteronomy 12, we learn that it was common practice in Canaan to sacrifice your own children to idols, which is just utterly repulsive. Imagine if it was part of our worship here. Bring up the kids in kid church and get them involved in worship, so to speak. Sorry for the dark humor. But that's what was going on in Canaan. We have to wrestle with that. In Leviticus 18, God lists out various sexual sins that Israel is not to commit, like incest and bestiality. And then he says, these are the sorts of things that the Canaanites often do. And God says the land is literally going to vomit them out, which is a gross image. But it just gets across how evil this society was. They took advantage of the most vulnerable, and they spread their corruption to their neighbors. They were sort of like the anti-Israel, a society that doesn't bless those around them, but instead curses them. And therefore, we're meant to see this war as an act of divine punishment, just like God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, just because God executes judgment on evil using other human beings doesn't mean that he won't bring ultimate blessing to all the nations through Israel. Just like disciplining your kids for bad behavior doesn't mean that you don't love them or don't want the best for them. One of my Old Testament professors would repeat this line in, in almost every class session. He would say, judgment is never the end of the story. In other words, until the capital J, final judgment, when God destroys evil once and for all, there is always an opportunity for repentance. And God's punishment is always meant to protect the weak and to take down cruel, unrepentant oppressors and idolaters. It's also telling for us that God threatens to do the same thing to Israel that he does to Canaan. And then when he actually does it, we're meant to see that Israel was acting just like the Canaanites and so received the same punishment. When God's people abandon God, the nation of Israel is destroyed, the people are driven out of the land. But judgment is never the end of the story. There is always an opportunity for anyone to turn back and be rescued. And that leads us to the details of the Canaanite war. So earlier I quoted Deuteronomy 20, you know, you shall wipe them out utterly. Uh, most of God's commands about this war, however, emphasize driving out the Canaanites rather than destroying them. So the issue wasn't that, hey, these Canaanites are alive. It's that they were living in the land that God had promised to Israel, and if they stayed there, they would corrupt God's people so that Israel couldn't be a blessing to the nations, which is exactly what happens later in the story. 
One scholar wrote, the conquest wasn't a massacre, it was a dismantling of a dark cultural regime. And so, the people of Israel were instructed by God to offer peace to every fortress and city before a battle. And we actually have stories in the book of Joshua of some who repent and worship the true God of Israel. Rahab is the most obvious example. And she actually joins the people of Israel. In verse 1 of Joshua 5, we're told that the hearts of the kings melted when they heard about what God was doing with Israel. So it could have happened in another timeline, in in the multiverse, that the Canaanites heard about the mighty and merciful God of Israel, and they could have repented. There would have been no bloodshed at all, but unfortunately that doesn't happen. There are battles that occur, and, and sometimes this trips us up because the description of these battles throughout Joshua is often there were no survivors, or they destroyed all that breathed. It just sounds like wholesale slaughter. But then you come across some inconsistencies. Like there's a story of a, a battle in Hebron, and it says, and they wiped out everything that was living in Hebron. And then a couple chapters later, you know, Israel's traveling around, and they come across some people living in Hebron. And you go, oh, so I guess that wasn't accurate, that they didn't actually wipe out everything that breathed. We have to recognize that this is very common in ancient war narratives to use hyperbole and exaggeration. It was sort of like a a written trash talk. And we still do this today. I mean, say I go to a ping pong tournament and I come home to Melissa and I say, I utterly decimated my enemies. None stood before me. I cut off their hands so that they would never play ping pong again. Like, a little bit exaggerated, but you, you understand what I'm saying here. Uh, a, poller name, a scholar named Paul Copen explains it this way. Uh, Joshua used the rhetorical bravado language of his day, asserting that all the land was captured, all the kings defeated, and all the Canaanites destroyed. And the point of this style is to emphasize God's total supremacy over evil. There's nothing that stands in the way of our God when he wants to dismantle evil and idolatry, especially as he brings his people into the promised land. That's an introduction to the Canaanite war, and there is so much more that we could say here, but but we should actually spend some more time in Joshua 5, right? So they are connected, of course. I wanted to go into this because this is the purpose that was set before Israel, and this is part of why the covenant renewal is happening. But I don't expect all of this to answer all of your questions. I don't even expect you to feel entirely comfortable with the Canaanite war. And and honestly, I've, I've studied these things, I've read a lot about it, and I still wrestle with this. So can we just agree that this sermon is not the end of the conversation? Can we just agree to that? We should have more conversations about this and talk about it and read and study more. If you want to talk to me about it, if you want to talk to one of the other pastors or your city group leaders, then you should do that and not feel afraid. This is a place where you can ask questions. But for now, let's just take, everyone take a deep breath. All right. Let's just get back to the big idea here, just to refocus us. When God calls his people back to faithfulness, we must renew our relationship and rethink our allegiance. So let's take those one at a time, and let's go ahead in our story in Joshua 5. We're going to be starting in verse 2 here. Joshua 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, 
make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. That's right, we're talking about circumcision two weeks in a row, you know, bonus. <laughs> so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And I've got it up there. Rolled away is Galal, and then they call the place Gilgal. Sounds similar. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, at first glance, these two events seem sort of strange and out of place in the story of Joshua. I mean, they just crossed over the Jordan River. They are in enemy territory right now. They set foot on the long-awaited promised land, and immediately they circumcise themselves. Ouch, not a great military strategy. And then they celebrate a feast, the Passover. But for the people of Israel at this time, these were the most important things that they could have done to prepare themselves to take the promised land. Why? Well, first, remember that circumcision was to be a sign to God's people that they were set apart for God. It was a reminder that you are God's people, set apart from the nations. But here we're told that the previous generation, the one that died in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise their kids. They weren't doing this basic covenant sign, the mark of their partnership with God. It's as if Israel had just taken off the wedding ring and thrown it away. But this generation renews their relationship with God by committing to the sign, even though it was painful, even though it was inconvenient, to say the least, even though it left them vulnerable to their enemies. What's most important is that they're saying, I got to be in a relationship with God or else anything I'm about to do is not going to work. And then look again at the result in verse 9. This is beautiful. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So we're meant to picture the sins of the Egypt generation like this heavy, heavy boulder, a stone that was blocking the path to God. And the Lord just pushes it away like it's nothing. Just what a powerful image 
of God's covenant with his people. When we come to God with, with a humble desire to be his, then there is absolutely nothing that God will let get in the way of our relationship. And so they call this place rolled away. Every time they look at a map, every time they pass through rolled away, they're meant to picture that is what God does to our reproach, to our shame, to our sin. It's powerful. The second sign, Passover, is also extraordinary. So, so the people have a Passover meal like they usually do. They, evidently, they've, they've kept up this ritual. And yet, there's something that's different here. Did you notice it? The people finally get to taste the food of the promised land, which is one of the main things that God would repeat in his promise to the people of Israel. He would say, I'm bringing you to a promised land where there is plentiful food, you know, milk and honey. And granted, there's no milk and honey here. There's only unleavened cakes and parched, bra- parched grain. Not parched brain, that would be weird. It's not yet the milk and honey that was promised. They haven't fully entered the land yet. But just imagine being there. You grew up longing and waiting for a home. You grew up hearing stories about tasting the food in the promised land. Your ancestors received that promise. It's not only been years, it's been decades of waiting. Eating what God miraculously provides in the desert but knowing that there's something more destined for you. And then as soon as you cross the Jordan, you get to celebrate the God who brought you out of Egypt with a Passover meal, and you get to taste, just just a foretaste of what the promised land will hold for you. The God who always provides, who always keeps his promises, no matter how his rebellious people get, I, I bet they couldn't believe it. I bet it tasted like milk and honey to them. Circumcision and Passover are two Jewish rituals that are no longer required for God's people today. Instead, as the New Testament teaches us, we have baptism as our covenant sign, the mark that we are in partnership and relationship with God. And then we have the Lord's Supper as this regular reminder of God's redemption of us. But even though those rituals don't apply to us, or rather we have new rituals as the people of God, what I want you to see this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to see the heart of God toward those who come to him and ask to renew their relationship. When you picture God and you come to him in prayer and maybe it's been a little while, maybe you've just sinned again, whose face do you picture? Or rather, what expression do you picture on God's face? Most of us, I think instinctively, picture a frown, at the very least boredom or apathy. Our God loves when we realize that life is not worth living if it's a life without him. And if you come to him and you say, God, I I want a new relationship with you, or I want us to be closer. I already have a relationship, but I want us to be closer in relationship. This God never pushes you away. Instead, what he pushes away is the reproach, the shame, the barriers that are keeping you from him. And he welcomes you in. This is the heart of our God, church. This is the Christian God. He is faithful and true. 
And like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, he longs for sinners to come limping back to him. And when you do so, there is nothing but a wide smile on his face and pure joy and excitement. So that's renewing our relationship with God. What about rethinking our allegiance? Let's look at the rest of this story in because uh, it takes a turn in verse 13 here. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said, Are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The battle is almost here. You flip the page in chapter 6 and it'll come. Jericho is near. The people are ready and committed to God. But one more thing has to happen before the people take the land. Joshua encounters this strange and threatening man. We're supposed to picture it kind of like the dark alley, you know? This guy's got a shiv, or in this case, a drawn sword, you know? And, and Joshua tries to discern. He says, all right, are you an Israelite or are you a Canaanite? And the man says, no, 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 no. You've got it wrong here. I am not for you. I am not for the Canaanites. I am for myself because I lead the Lord's army. That's a remarkable statement. One commentator summarizes the, meanings of, uh, the meaning of these words like this. It says, It was not for Joshua to claim God's allegiance for his cause, no matter how right or holy it might be. Rather, the need was for Joshua to acknowledge God's claim over Joshua for God's purposes. So this conversation forces us to realize that God's people go astray when we blindly believe that God is in support of whatever cause or pursuit happens to align with my position. Like I can just slap on God's seal of approval for whatever I believe and say, you know, in everything I stand for, God is on my side. Now, is God on his people's side? Yes, in one sense. We have to understand the sense that is meaning here. The sense is we must be on God's side, following his lead. Only by rethinking our allegiance to him will we have the proper posture to love and serve our Lord. And that's worth pondering for us. Does God support my convictions, my causes, or am I being careful to submit everything I do to the authority of the God who made me, who sustains me, who claims me as his own. This is going back to the third commandment. We must be very, very careful before we say, my way is Yahweh. Before we say, God is supportive of everything that I happen to believe with. In fact, if, if the God of the Bible happens to align perfectly with your political party, with your personal convictions, you've probably got some rethinking to do. You've probably got this backward. 
And to that, the commander of the army of the Lord says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on the side of your enemies. You must be on God's side. The story is significant for another reason. We're, we're told that this man, he's distinct from God, right? He, he's a separate person. He's the commander of the Lord's army. So he's not exactly the same as the Lord. And yet, when Joshua falls on the ground and worships him, this man doesn't do what other angels in the Bible say. They, they don't say, whoa, 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 don't worship me. You should only worship God. Remember, that's the first commandment. Instead, what that man does is he goes even further. He accepts Joshua's worship, and he says the same thing that the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. He says, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. So this commander is someone who is separate from God, and yet he also claims to be God, or rather he accepts being worshipped as God. And people have been pondering this puzzle for centuries this is not a new problem. And it's this story, among many other stories in the Old Testament, that led the followers of Jesus to see the seeds of what would be called the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is one being in three persons. If you have trouble seeing that or if you feel like it's kind of a stretch, let's just put it this way. If you were in Joshua's shoes and then years later you were pondering this encounter, what would you honestly conclude from this conversation? You, you might say, okay, so the God we worship, he claims to be the only God. We shouldn't worship any other God. And yet within that God, there is complexity. There's things I don't understand about him and the way he shows himself to his people. And, and to be clear here, there's a debate on the identity of this figure, even from the earliest days of Christianity. Uh, Augustine and Jerome thought it was an archangel, uh, others thought it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. You know, Jesus sort of pops in and says, hey, and then he you know, gets out and says, wait till the book of Matthew. You know. <laughs> the text doesn't say definitively. But here's what I think we can say. I think that this passage creates a, an empty space in our mental shelves. Like as we're reading the rest of the Bible, we're going to be looking for someone who is both separate from God and yet is God at the same time. And so we have this, you know, like a mold, and we're wondering who's going to fit that mold as we continue reading the Bible. And that, I think, is Jesus, ultimately. But, but let me just move away from ancient Israelite rituals and mysterious figures, and let's just end where we began. How can we get back to God when we've wandered from him in the past? We've said that we need to renew our relationship and that God welcomes our repentance with love and joy and grace. We've said we need to rethink our allegiance because we are aligned with God when we see ourselves as following his lead rather than the other way around. And we've talked at length about the war against the Canaanites. I just want to tie this all together with a story about Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus is traveling around, he's teaching and he's healing, and we're told that a Canaanite woman came to him, and she begged him to heal her daughter. Now, she's called a Canaanite in the story, even though by Jesus' day, that was a dated term. It would be like calling someone from Boston, you know, a British colonist right now. It was just, it was dated, 
Jesus has a a fascinating conversation with her that we don't have time to cover, but the story ends with Jesus amazed by this woman's faith in him as he immediately heals her daughter. And I think it's intentional that Matthew tells us that this woman was descended from the Canaanites, the ancient enemies of Israel. See, here is Jesus. He's a man who claims to be God. He is claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, who would bring restoration to God's people and defeat all of their enemies. And in the minds of Jesus' disciples, that's exactly what a Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to bring the drawn sword and cut down God's enemies. And Jesus loves the Canaanite. All the hostilities of the past, all the wars and idolatry and evil, all the failures and tensions and claims about the land, all of that is cast aside. And in this moment, Jesus loves the Canaanite. All that matters is faith in Jesus. Her faith in Jesus. All that matters is faith in the one who is prophesied to end all wars. Faith in the one who took the reproach of the people into his own flesh as he died on the cross. Faith in the one whose powerful resurrection, Gilgal, rolled away the stone from the empty tomb. Faith in the one who gives his people bread and wine. And he says, this is but a foretaste of the promised land that I am bringing you to. Faith in the one who will strike down his enemies in the last day. Faith in the one whose name all nations and all people groups will shout in a thousand languages. Faith in the one who makes all things new. Amen, church? That is what matters. That's what matters to Jesus as he's interacting with this Canaanite woman. That's what matters to Jesus in your interactions with him, no matter your background. If you want to be renewed in your relationship with God, even if you've never had a relationship with God, give your allegiance to Jesus and to him alone. The Apostle Peter put it this way in the book of Acts. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now for those of us who are Christians, we are never completely separated from God. We're united in Christ. This means we don't lose our salvation when we wander from God. You are not in charge of keeping yourself saved. At the same time, you're in a relationship with God. And like in any relationship, we can do things that either draw us closer to God or push him away. Our communion with him can be disrupted and affected by our behavior. That's part of a relationship, and God accepts that. So what is required to renew your relationship with God? I think it it might include um, confession. It might include repentance looking at unrepentant sin in your life and saying, God, please, this is a barrier between you and me. Please roll it away. Rejoining the church and being part of the community and the family of God, participating in the signs of our covenant. If you haven't been baptized and you proclaim the name of Jesus, I mean, let this be your invitation. 
It's a public proclamation of now I'm renewing my relationship with God and I want everybody to know about it. And then communion, regularly, every week, taking it with the signs of Jesus' body and blood, the signs of his love for us. It looks like seeking to know God through reading his word, through talking with him, through doing the normal things that a relationship involves. Listening, speaking to one another, loving one another more and more. The, the church of Jesus Christ is a place where all people can find peace and community, a, a place where you can renew your relationship with God after you've strayed. And if that's you, I hope that you find this a safe place you can figure out what, what does it mean for me to be in a relationship with God again? A place where we can freely and joyfully serve God without fear of judgment, safe and secure in his grace. Next week, we're gonna be looking at the book of Judges as we continue the story of God's people following the thread of Jesus through the Bible. Now, fair warning about the book of Judges. Uh, much of the Bible is not exactly great uh, bedtime story material uh, for your children, but Judges is especially R-rated, right? Uh, the sequel to Joshua is what happens, as I alluded to, what happens when God's people fail to drive out the Canaanites, and instead they start participating in the same practices that they do. So try this week to read the whole book of Judges. It's, it's entertaining, it's tragic, it's all of the above. If you read nothing else, just read chapters 6 to 16. That'll give you a good gist of that. But for now, let me pray for God to help us this week. Father God, when we read your word, there are things that give us pause and questions there are things, no matter how long we've been walking with you, that we wrestle with. And yet you offer to walk with us through our questions, to be with us in our doubt, to come alongside us and show us light and truth. Would you show us light and truth this week as we read your word, as we study the story of God's people, our family history, and then, Jesus, would you make us salt and light in this world to be able to bless those around us with the grace that you have shown us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. Amen. You can please